Hey, what's up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here. A little bit later today, so I apologize for that in advance, but uh, I hope your, what's it, Wednesday, March 1st, is going well. Look, we're getting close to summer. Or not summer, spring. God, I wish we were getting close to summer. That's where my mind's at. But hey, it's actually clear here today. Quite cold still, but I will take the sunshine. But yes, it's cold. I almost slipped on some ice on my walk, and I think that's when my mind's going into summer. But I'll take it. It's March. Happy March. We're back into a happier month, I guess, than February, which, like I said, is my least favorite month. And anyways, I want to start. I <laughs> Before I started recording, I was re-watching the video where Lori Lightfoot is kind of the COVID-killing superhero. She's dressed like Clorox bleach or hand sanitizer or something, I forget, and she's on stage dancing around. And then she's like, I think you guys know why I'm doing this conference. And, you know, it was when she was the superhero that was going to get rid of COVID. And uh, it was interesting, to say the least. Very interesting, to say the least. And anyways, the reason I start with that is because there's not a lot of good news out there these days. I will be the first to tell you that. But there is some good news, at least today, and it's that Lori Lightfoot will not even make it to the next round of votes to be the mayor of Chicago. And this is pretty wild because Lori Lightfoot is the incumbent, and she got third place. <laughs> and she became the first Chicago mayor in over 40 years to lose a re-election campaign. And to make this even, or I guess to put this even into more perspective, I lived in Chicago. A lot of my uh, master's classes, we talked about the administration and policy side of the city of Chicago and kind of the big machine politics that came out of there. And... Pretty much over the last century, if you get elected into Chicago politics, you really don't go anywhere. Like, it's kind of a machine. It's a corrupt place. Like, once you're in, you're in. Like, the Daly family ran Chicago for generations. And so the fact that Lori Lightfoot couldn't even get reelected, I think, is all you need to know about how crazy it is. Because it is a place of established politics. Once you're in, you're in. Now, before we get into all the details, I just can't actually wait to see how she spins this loss. The reason I say that is because whenever she's criticized, whenever she's attacked, whenever she's called a been called abrasive, she blames it on homophobia, on being a woman, and on racism. And I'll be the first to tell you that, of course, those things exist, especially as a gay black woman. Like, she will clearly have people that maybe will not respect her as much as they would as a white man. I'm sure that's the case. But that is not her issue specifically. From every account I've read, she's kind of difficult at maintaining relationships with people she needs to work with. She's abrasive. She's kind of cold. And she doesn't seem to understand like the rules of politics where you need to develop relationships and maintain them. And it's going to be interesting to see how she responds to this loss, but I'm sure she will blame it on racism for sure. And Anyways, as of now, she finished third, like I said, in the vote count, which happened yesterday, I believe, and that means she's not moving on to the runoff in April, and the crazy thing is, is she didn't even get a fifth of the vote, or 20%. As of now, she got about 17.1%, which is pretty crazy again, but I think it shows how angry the city is, and... The runoff is going to be between two people who kind of uh, represent groups that she pissed off, which is kind of ironic. One example is... Paul Vallis, who is a former head of the city's school system, and he is a Democrat, but I guess he's been endorsed by the Republicans in Chicago as well, and also he's kind of ran on this tough on crime message, and he's popular with the police department, and I think 
some of you are aware, and if you're not, Lori Lightfoot is not popular with the police department by any means. And like the interesting thing is, is that basically during COVID was happening, <laughs> she allowed the city to hold Lollapalooza, which I mean, no doubt was probably a super, super spreader event, right? And then while she was holding this event, she was also in a battle with the police union and the police department to force them to be vaccinated. You had a lot of walks, walk-offs. Um, if you look at numbers, a lot of police left over the last couple of years. And her big deal was making sure they were vaccinated, not crime, while Lollapalooza was probably a super spreader event. So not popular with police by any means. So this Paul Vallis guy, he, he did quite well. He is leading right now. He got 34%. And then the other guy is Brandon Johnson, who is a quite a progressive. If he ends up becoming mayor, he would be the, I guess, probably one of the most progressive people in Chicago mayoral history. And he's a county commissioner and also was a union organizer. And yeah, these two, um, these two are going forward. Vallis got 34%. Johnson got 20%. And it's going to be interesting to see what happens next. And just another side thing before I get into more specifics, I got back to Chicago, oh gosh, it was probably January 2022. I had, no, February 2022, because I had, I had COVID over the holidays, you know, triple vaccinated, blah, 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 didn't get very sick, but I had to delay my time going back to grad school, so I stayed in California for a little bit longer, and I get back in late January, early February to Chicago, and they have this vaccine mandate. So my mom and I need to use the bathroom in downtown Chicago. We didn't bring our vaccine cards with us, and we couldn't even go in the Starbucks to use the bathroom. And so then I realized, okay, they have this vaccine mandate. While she's, you know, still at war with the police over the mandate, and then she put out this tweet, which I wanted to share. It says, and this is um, December 21st, 2021. She says, to put it simply, if you have been living vaccine-free, your time is up. If you wish to live life with the ease to do the things you love, you must be vaxxed. The health order may pose an inconvenience to the unvaccinated, and in fact, it's inconvenient by design. So I'll get into crime and all the other stuff in a minute, but while the city has a lot of issues, this is what she's doing. And she has pretty much made people's lives inconvenient, also fighting with the police. Police are leaving. And I was just thinking, like... I guess I've always been pretty laissez-faire on the vaccine thing. I basically have always felt like I think the vaccine is good and people should get it. But if you're not going to get it by now, you're probably not going to get it ever. And to make people's lives inconvenient and then kick some people out of enjoying businesses when we know it can be spread no matter what, it just felt kind of insane to me, especially when the city had just so many other issues going on. And I think that was just one of the other things where she wanted to make things inconvenient and... Yeah, I think it was just kind of a pain in the ass move. But moving on, crime crime is definitely probably one of the main things that were not in her favor and probably led to this result. Now, if you actually look at numbers around the nation, crime is up, but like murder and violent crime are not actually up. They've kind of gone down since there was a peak, I believe it was in 2020. It's not really up just in liberal cities either. I mean, Chicago is worse off than New York City, and it's worse off than Los Angeles. But crime is just generally up. Nonviolent crime is generally up. But red and blue states are pretty equivalent in it. And like I said, Illinois and Florida are actually both kind of middle of the pack here. So it's not, it's not like Chicago is the only city with these issues. But over the last couple decades, 
violent crime has gone up. And part of that, too, is that Indiana's right there. You can drive about 30 minutes to get into Indiana, and people can bring guns over. So that, you know, just worsens the gun violence you see in parts of South Chicago, western suburbs as well. And it's kind of just been creeping further north. And so you have that issue. You also have COVID. You have historical racism and gang violence. And a lot of this leads to the city the way it is. But also you have a growing homeless crisis in all these cities and especially in Chicago. I think that's more of a side effect of inequality, COVID, lack of health care, drug addiction. But I guess generally speaking, crime is not even close to what it was in the 70s. But that being said, while I was in Chicago and I was in, I was a little bit north of downtown, which was not a bad area by any means. While I was there for close to two years, there were times I just, you know, and it was getting worse since I got there. And you just didn't really feel safe there at certain parts. You, you always read about some sort of shooting downtown. There was a murder in a hotel down the street. Someone on my block just got beat up. I had a friend have a gun pulled on him. You know, it's just you, you kind of look over your shoulder and there's an uncertainty in the air that doesn't really make you feel too warm. And crime moved up from the south and pretty much has impacted every part of the city. And, you know, I, I lived on a busy street and at night I definitely heard things that were at times shocking, things you didn't really want to hear. And it was always loud. And anyways, the, the pandemic has just, I, I think, really changed Chicago. And I think voters decided that Lightfoot was just not the right fit for the city. And... I guess the kind of interesting part too here is that this is more anecdotal than anything, but there was almost a bipartisan feeling of disdain for her time as mayor. I had MAGA friends in Chicago, big Trump supporters. They obviously didn't like her. Centrist didn't like her. And even a lot of my really leftist or progressive friends also didn't like her. So she did a really, really good job of bringing the city together against her, of course, but she did bring the city together. And anyways, Going back to this election, the New York Times writes, in quotes, crime in Chicago has surged since the pandemic began, with the number of major crimes 33% higher last year than in 2019. The murder rate has fallen from its 2021 peak, but only modesty, modestly, sorry. and robberies and car thefts have been rising recently. In a recent poll, nearly two-thirds of Chicago residents said they felt unsafe. And I would echo that. I would definitely be part of that two-thirds for sure. And I think this just takes us to kind of an inevitable truth that people will always vote someone out, especially, even if it's not directly their fault, if they feel unsafe. And it seems like the city just could not solve other issues either. Like the thing is, is because crime was always at the forefront of everything. So even if there were other issues going on, she wasn't able to really focus on those. And then again, her inability to work with the police. Now, obviously, the police were a pain in the ass to her as well. Like, it's, it, it takes two to tango here in this case. But you, you have to understand that she was really alienating to even other aldermen, other, other members of, of the local government and everything. So it made it really hard for her to actually work in coalitions and get things done. Now, I think it's also important to note that it's unclear whether, whether these two that are running now in the runoff Volus and Johnson, whether they can actually change anything. But I think people just want a fresh face and they want to bring something new to the table. I think, uh, I think Lightfoot was just too much of a distraction at the end of the day. And her lack of just political expertise made things difficult. And she was just a pain in the ass, especially during the pandemic. Like she blamed the rise in crime on 
remote learning during the pandemic, but then she also forgot to mention that she was the one that kept kids home longer than a lot of other cities. Not San Francisco, but other cities. Uh, She also, you know, she had a fraught relationship with the police, like I said, but then also after the death of George Floyd, a lot of people did not like to see businesses and rioting happening on Michigan Avenue in downtown Chicago, for example. Then she had that moment where she mentioned that she would only let black reporters interview her, which I understand like equity and trying to like be more representative, but it just came off as just a politically stupid move and just something just tone deaf in my opinion. So I, I think people were just sick of all the, all the noise, all the buzz. And before we move on to the next topic, I do think it's important to discuss maybe why her legacy was so disappointing after a promising start. Remember she was going to be kind of this big deal and obviously things did not go that way. So again, like, like I've mentioned, education, I think a big problem in her legacy. Uh, she battled over a contract with the Chicago Teachers Union early in her term, presided over an 11-day teacher strike, and she, she fought the CTU, uh, the Chicago Teachers Union, over COVID protocols, kept kids out of school for five days in early 2022 even. So we're talking about 2022, not like 2021, 2020, 2022. She was always in fights with the teachers' unions, which is never a good look. You don't want the whole education department against you. Then there's also the economic uncertainty. A lot of high-profile businesses moved their headquarters out of town. Some of the examples were taxes. Others were unsafety, or (laughs) lack of safety, sorry. Violence under her watch. I even think about the Chicago Bears, which have always been at Soldier Field for as long as I can remember. And they, I believe, are moving to Arlington Heights, suburb outside of Chicago. So that's going to be a big loss for the city. A Walmart executive had voiced concerns about employees returning to the office. They didn't feel safe returning to the office. And she downplayed it in an interview, or I guess it was a town town meeting or a press conference. She basically just said he needs to get his you know facts together. And I think that gets to a bigger issue with her is there was always just kind of a willingness to kind of discredit criticism. And it's a problem, though, when you have big employers wanting to leave because employees don't want to work there and also the taxes are high. But then again, like, what are you paying for? Like, look, I'm fine with taxes if you're getting something in return. But when taxes are higher than in other cities and also you don't feel safe, it's a problem. Then there's also, like I said earlier, the political infighting. She spent a lot of her time bickering with the city council. There was a former alder woman, Sue Sadlowski Garza, who said last year in quotes, I'm sick and tired of being thrown under the bus. Apparently that was a big common thing. Lightfoot also also clashed with the media and was just, again, like I said, not really popular with anybody. Um, there was an alderman who asked her what they're doing about crime and it's getting troubling and she basically just said, don't worry about it. You know, just always downplaying everything. She also clashed with the media. And her, <laughs> this is the crazy thing, is that even J.B. Pritzker, who's a fairly popular governor from everything I understand, governor of Illinois, Democrat, he didn't even endorse her for this year's re-election campaign. Not good. Not good. And I guess the incompetency is over. Like I said, we will see if either of these other two can do anything better, but I think a fresh face, a change is good. And we might either have a centrist or one of the most progressives in history for Chicago. I'm hoping Dallas, the centrist wins because I do think we need that in a lot of cities right now, but only time will tell. Only time will tell.
And and I, I will note that I, I think more of a moderate or at least someone that focuses on the crime issue. The reason I think that's a good idea is because all you have to do is look at Karen Bass, who is the current mayor of Los Angeles, recently elected. And she's a progressive, but she has a pretty successful progressive message on crime. She's a community organizer, spent 12 years in the House of Representatives, and she actually defeated the conservative. And she didn't do it by downplaying crime, but she actually talked about it. And she's tried to strike a balance by calling for both the hiring of police officers and also the tougher punishments for abusive officers. So like, I think she's doing what a sensible person, which is hard to find sometimes, what they would do is they say, no, we need more officers, we need better training, but also we can't have qualified immunity for all of these officers, stuff like that. Um, She said something in a quote I was reading in quotes, we must stop crimes in progress and hold people accountable. Let me be so bold as to add that we can prevent crime and community violence by addressing the social, health, and the economic conditions that comprise a safe environment. So... I think there's a there's a fine line between like social justice, progressive policies, and also being kind of firm on law and order. And Lori Lightfoot didn't do any of that, and the voters said adios. Sticking on, I guess, elections or at least hypothetical elections, hypothetical primaries, I want to talk a bit about Ron DeSantis and Trump. And obviously they seem to be the only two viable options right now on the right, unfortunately. <clears throat> And some people think Trump would be worse. Some people think DeSantis would be worse. And I kind of want to weigh in on that, first providing two different perspectives. So Damon Linker is, I guess, a centrist liberal type. He writes a substat called Eyes on the Right, which is really good, by the way. I recommend people uh, check it out. He also wrote for The Week, though I don't think he does anymore. And he's also a regular on the Beg to Differ podcast, which is also really good, kind of a roundtable hosted by Mona Sharon, who is really smart. I recommend her as well. And I really agree with Linker on a lot of his takes a lot of the time. And he has good insights on the right. He's done some good coverage of how the MAGA movement needs to compensate. So now there's an academic movement, kind of the Claremont Institution and all these other like far-right groups. And he talks about kind of what's happening on the right, and it's kind of interesting to read about. So he does a good job there. However, yesterday, or maybe the day for day before, I kind of forget, he put out an article in the New York Times, and I really don't know if I agree with it all that much. And the Bulwark, you know, neoconservative podcast, which I kind of align with on a lot of views, Charlie Sykes also put out a newsletter today that also argues that Trump would always be worse. And I understand the talking points of, like, Trump just doesn't seem to understand our institutions. He's discredited our democracy, our elections, etc. I don't need to reiterate all of it. I understand that. But I guess my, my thing would be is that if you're a never-Trumper, sometimes you're always just convinced that Trump is the problem and you're not willing to open your eyes to maybe think that, like, maybe something's worse. And maybe that's why I'm not completely a never-Trumper because, and this is going to sound crazy, I actually would probably rather Trump have another term than DeSantis. And I am willing to be corrected on that. I'm willing to beg to differ. I'm willing to be challenged on that. And I'm always open to change my mind. But at this point, from everything I've been seeing DeSantis do versus Trump, I, I truly do believe that. And so anyways, um, let's, let's get into what Damon Linker talks about first. Because He put an article out called, My Fellow Liberals Are Exaggerating the Dangers of Ron DeSantis. And 
I should also add that it's not like Damon Linker is some big DeSantis supporter, by the way. So I, I do want to just give him the credit there. Is this is a guy who is probably going to vote for a Democrat. Like a lot of the bulwark, they've just given up on the Republican Party until it's fixed. But he he does think that Trump is more of a threat to our republic. And I will just read a little passage from it to give you a taste of what he writes about. He writes here in quotes, So let's stipulate that Mr. Trump and Mr. DeSantis would both try to do bad things in office. But Mr. Trump still brings something distinctive and much more dangerous to the contest, or rather several things. He is flagrantly corrupt. He lies constantly. He's impulsive and capricious. And he displays a lust for power combined with complete indifference to democratic laws and norms that constrain presidential power. And I think Linker here is basically arguing that DeSantis may have wild policies, but policies can be reversed. We've had radical policies in history. We've had people that have tried to get past radical policies. Even when Ron DeSantis was part of the Freedom Caucus, he was putting out radical policies. But Linker is saying Trump, however, has kind of shredded our social fabric, shredded our trust in elections. And those things are much harder to fix or reverse or mend than just policies. And Linker also writes here in quotes, a DeSantis presidency would be bad in many ways, and my fellow liberals should fight with all they have to prevent it. But Mr. DeSantis almost certainly would not be worse than Mr. Trump. He also discusses how DeSantis has more broad appeal to moderates than Trump does, I guess this could be exemplified in how Jeb Bush has endorsed Ron DeSantis, which, by the way, was kind of depressing. I've always liked Jeb. But anyways, Linker points out that Trump was different and actually kind of had a <laughs> – I thought this was actually a pretty astute point from Linker. And you see, even when I disagree with Linker, he's a really smart guy. But Linker says that Trump almost had an anti-mandate due to his small support amongst the GOP and amongst the nation, obviously. And so what he means there is that – he lost to Hillary by, what, almost 3 million votes and had low approval ratings, and he kept pressing on with these extreme shifts in policy, and that made him kind of this unique, polarizing, unstable dude because so much of the nation opposed him, but he kept just doing it. And I think an anti-mandate is a great way to describe Trump's years, right? He was trying to reverse the Obama era, trying to uh, kind of go against what the majority wanted. And I think... <laughs> I, I guess Linker's argument is that DeSantis has more appeal and things would be less unstable because maybe he would moderate once he gets into office or like once he became president because, and I've heard this argument from some people and I entertain it sometimes, but then I also like then see what DeSantis says in interviews or in press conferences and then I backtrack. But I think a lot of people say that like DeSantis does these culture war things is like red meat for the base, but then he also just kind of passes like milk toast shit that no one talks about. We don't talk about it because it's so average. And so I think a lot of people think that most of DeSantis's gubernatorial era has actually been pretty moderate. It's just the things he does that get attention are crazy. Sometimes I understand that. And maybe he, he does seem like a guy who kind of just goes along. So maybe once he was president, if he was ever president, maybe he would change. But then again, you see the things he does and how he wants to punish private corporations and he wants to limit what kids learn. And I don't know if I agree with that either. So all you have to do is look, though, at what DeSantis is doing in Florida involving AP classes, the new school or what's a new university in Florida, what he's doing with companies like Disney, his opposition to AP classes, which are usually voluntary, by the way. You, you opt to take them. It's not like they're mandated. But anyways... I do think Linker brings up a good point, though, 
when he discusses in quotes here, exaggerating the threat posed by the Florida governor could inadvertently increase Trump's prospects in the primaries. And if Mr. DeSantis does get the nomination, progressive overreaction toward him in the primary contest could ultimately undermine the case against him in the general election. So he's basically saying like, this could help Trump, right? Attacks on Trump could, or I mean, sorry, attacks on DeSantis could help Trump, which is true. He's also saying if progressives attack uh, uh, DeSantis too much, then it would actually help this, you know, it actually help the base as well. I understand that. My issue here is that, like I said earlier, I do think DeSantis is more dangerous than Trump. It's not only because of his competency, like competency compared to Trump, but it's also because I think DeSantis is actually just a nastier and almost more mean-spirited person who actually wants to use public policy to enact his nastiness. Like, look, Trump is not the nicest guy either by any means, but Trump just did the culture war stuff, I think, to appease his base and to get votes and to get popular and get on TV. Like, we know Trump doesn't give a shit about that stuff. Also, Trump, like, Trump kind of seems to understand the political tides and the energy. Like, Trump is really good at reading the room. It seems like DeSantis, like, like there's even Republicans, like I talked about a few weeks ago on the podcast, like, there's Republicans that think DeSantis is going too far because of all this stuff. Like, DeSantis just seems to want to, like, almost prove to us that the cure can be worse than the disease when you talk about the far left and wokeism. And Trump just never tried that hard to actually enact the things he said. And DeSantis is, like, almost doing more than he should. And because of that, it seems like DeSantis wants to genuinely be a part of the culture war. Like, he sees it as his, like, holy crusade, right? He genuinely wants to fight wokeism. He genuinely wants to suppress whatever he deems woke. And yes, maybe he does moderate on the national stage. Maybe he focuses on passing policy. But if we've looked at this little like tour he's done around the country, it's just lecturing other mayors about how great Florida is and how woke everyone else is. It's like it's like there's a mind virus of woke of anti-wokeism that's kind of taken over his mind. So that does worry me what he would do on a national stage. And I guess I'm not the only one who disagrees with Damon Linker because Newsweek has a pretty good article and it discusses how Ruth Benjat, who is a professor of history and Italian studies at NYU, New York University, has written several books on propaganda and talked about Mussolini and authoritarianism. And she is worried that DeSantis, not Trump, would destroy our democracy. And I've actually listened to her on several podcasts and podcasts, and she is really smart. She knows her shit when she's talking about fascism, basically. And basically, she made this statement after seeing Jeb Bush endorse DeSantis. And she tweeted in quotes, Ron DeSantis will destroy our democracy with deadly precision. I cannot emphasize enough how dangerous he is. And I must note that this expert on fascism, who I do think is quite a reputable source here, is not the only one sounding the alarm. Florida Democratic Congressman Maxwell Alejandro Frost has said in quotes here, if you disagree with Ron DeSantis, he'll abuse his power to close down your business, take over your school, remove your classes, and unconstitutionally fire you. And now before we go on, which I think this is all true, by the way, about DeSantis, it's kind of true about Trump, isn't it? The difference is, is that Trump is incompetent. Like, look, Trump also has a fragile ego. 
Trump also attacked his political opponents. I mean, look even what he did with Vladimir Zelensky, which involved his first impeachment because, you know, he was looking into Hunter Biden and all this stuff. Like, like Trump does the same thing. So just because I'm saying DeSantis, I think, is maybe more dangerous, it's also not me saying Trump isn't because a lot of this stuff like abuse power to close your business, take over your school, remove your classes, and unconstitutionally fire you kind of sounds like Trump as well. But anyways, going back to Ben Jot's comments, she also discusses why, and by the way, I think this is actually probably her best point. She discusses why some on the far right may be moving away from Trump to DeSantis. It's one that connects with me especially because I've been reading books on Mussolini and why he, or why and when he was finally removed from power and then inevitably killed in North in Northern Italy. And Newsweek notes and quotes here, days after the Capitol riot on January 2021, Ben Jot compared GOP figures distancing themselves from Trump to when Italian fascists voted Mussolini out of power in 1943. She says in quotes here, some turned on him not to, resp- not to restore democracy, but to save fascism by getting rid of an incompetent leader. And I actually think this may be interesting. It's something I haven't thought about, but it's a super astute point. It does, and I'm not saying everyone, because I do think some people just see Ron DeSantis as the lesser of two evils. I I do have sympathy for that point. But anyways, it seems like some on the right, especially the MAGA right, are willing to go with DeSantis or move away from Trump, not because they disliked Trumpism, but because Trump was so blatantly obvious, so destructive, so loud. He got caught orchestrating a very stupid coup that failed. And I guess the question is, like, what if these people could have a leader that creates this far-right state of, you know, Christian nationalism and anti-wokeism and, you know, like kind of reflects the American view from the 50s and 60s, but without all the obnoxious behavior? And I guess the thing is, is that DeSantis would be the perfect solution to that, right? If you look at what DeSantis is doing in Florida, what he says about Ukraine, his attacks on government, on private industry, he's basically being Trump, but without the charisma. And maybe in a sense, that would save the MAGA movement, even though I don't know if that would actually work in an election. Like, it's kind of a tough conundrum because Trump was popular because of his charisma, but also he didn't get enough done because of his charisma. So what if you had a guy that believes a lot of the things Trump does, but also is like quiet and prickly, but also smarter? I I think going back to what Ben Jot said, though, it makes sense that maybe people turned on Trump not to restore democracy, but to save this authoritarianism that we're seeing. And I think DeSantis is part of that because he seems to have a vendetta against uh the trans community, drag queens, like he's defunded so many things because they had relationships with drag queens. Like, I don't know about you guys, but I don't think the biggest issue in our society is drag or the trans community or what a gay teacher wants to say at school about themselves. I I just, I just think there's bigger fish to fry out there. And DeSantis seems to be really wanting to limit knowledge about social issues in place of kind of the established status quo. And when you get more authoritarian in protecting the status quo, I think that's when you start blurring the lines of democracy and authoritarianism. And I I do think a lot of the Lauren Boberts and those types who are clearly authoritarians, I think they would turn to him because he's 
kind of an effective authoritarian. So anyways, like I am not saying vote for Trump by any means. I am just saying that I don't think DeSantis is the lesser of two evils. I really don't. I think they're both bad and it sucks that that's the choice we have, but both are a pain in the ass. And I don't know how we move forward, to be completely honest, if that's the choice on the right. So moving on to the African continent, actually, before we're out of here, I just wanted to do a little more brief little lecture here about Nigeria's recent presidential elections and another time where we're seeing some issues with democracy in another country. And I'd mentioned, I think it was, oh God, it had to be back in January. I mentioned that Nigeria was holding elections and it was an important election because Lagos, Nigeria, other big cities, as well as the country in general, there was a lot of hope and the country's really been stagnant and it's been very dependent on one resource, which is oil for the economy. And obviously it's not been awful right now because of the war in Ukraine, but the country can't just rely on that and youth unemployment, poverty have all spiked. And so this election was key. And so anyways, the elections that I had talked about have concluded, but <laughs> a lot of the parties involved believe the the election was stolen. They don't believe the results. There's a lot of uncertainty and distrust in the election results, and there's not a whole lot of good coming out of that now. And the issue, the issue with that, I guess, is that Nigeria is a country that needs a good leader and someone and institutions that can bring bring back kind of a robust democracy to the country because I think it's always been on the brink of something big and I think it still is but it needs good leadership but anyways to kind of put this into perspective the economist notes in an article from today in quotes Bola Tinubu of the ruling all progressives congress party was declared the winner of Nigeria's presidential election Mr. Tinubu won 30 36% of the vote his opponents have rejected the results, calling for a fresh poll to be held. The failings of a new electronic voting system, which has been slow to release tallies, has damaged faith in the fairness of the competition. Good God. I mean, <laughs> with all these voting machine issues, like maybe we should bring in Mike Lindell, you know, to help get to the bottom of this case. Like he's clearly a resident expert on machines. Uh, maybe he can, you know, sue the machines there too, bring it into question. I'm kidding, of course, so don't, don't, don't get mad at me for that. But anyways, let's get into the issue here and see if the opposition are correct. What I will say is that winning with 30, 36% of the vote, Mr. Tanubu won with 36% of the vote. That's a pretty small number for a victory. Of course, American elections are getting more and more like that as well. But 36% is not exactly a uh, promising number. Not because it's like fraudulent or anything like that, but just it tells me that a little bit more than a third of the country or a third of those who voted wanted him. Obviously, he got more than the other candidates, but when a third of the nation wants you, it's not really that promising. But moving on, The Economist also notes here in quotes, Mr. Tanubu, a 70-year-old former governor of Lagos and longtime kingmaker in Nigerian politics, which is not great, by the way, took 37% of the vote the Electoral Commission said on March 1st. This placed him ahead of Atiku Abubakar, who is a tycoon standing for the People's Democratic Party, the main opposition, and Peter Obi, a wild-card third-party candidate representing the Labor Party. Now, like I said, Tanibu got 37, 36% of the vote, depending on the polls you look at. Abubakar got 29%, and Obi got 25%. 
Very close, by the way. <laughs> Very close. But apparently these results were actually shocking to a lot of pollsters in the country because polls actually showed that the wildcard third-party guy, Peter Obai, was looking like he may win. Now, a lot of these polls have been put into question, but that's actually pretty fascinating to me as well. Anyways, getting back to the big picture here. This election was supposed to be very transparent and very fair. Apparently, there was this new technology, new vote, new computer voting system that was put out by the Independent National Electoral Commission. And this voting system was meant to identify voters and then transmit photos of the results directly from close to 200,000 voting stations to a central location. And then the public could actually see and verify them. And it was supposed to be a big deal. And... To add context to this as well, Nigeria has a long history of violence following elections, and basically the goal here was to improve that issue. But the irony here is that this new system, this new voting program, actually had so many issues that now all the parties are calling for another election, they're questioning the results, and somehow this new improvement has actually made the situation worse, and experts are worrying about violence. And... Just some examples of why this program failed, <laughs> and it really did. Like, this is just facts. Like, there's no—it's not like in the U.S. where there weren't actually machine failures, but, you know, the Mike Lindells say there were. In this case, there just were. So, to like, for one example, less than an hour before the vote started, a third of the voting machines weren't working. That's a big problem. Also, the Center for Democracy and Development, which is an NGO in Africa, said in quotes, there were also reports of voter intimidation, vote buying, the snatching of ballot boxes, and the burning of ballot papers. All of this undoubtedly reduced turnout. And they are correct, because I was looking at turnout, and it's pretty troubling. About 25 to 27% of eligible Nigerians voted. And that is insane because apparently 35% turned out in 2019 for the previous election. So we're looking at 25% of the country was able to vote. Now, then when you put into perspective that Ternubu, Tenubu, sorry, got 36%, Abu Bakar, 29%, and Obi, 25%, if only a quarter of the country voted... Is it because they didn't want to vote or did more people want to vote but they couldn't? Because those results are very close. And that does bring up troubling concerns about the election. I am not enough of an expert on Nigerian electoral politics to really say what happens next. I know the State Department has congratulated Tanubu. Uh, in an email I have, they talk about concerns and frustration, which totally makes sense. And... Like the State Department says, Nigerians are within their rights to have these concerns. And I guess... I guess what you... Sorry, there was a pause there. But I guess what you need to do is make sure future elections, like the gubernatorial elections coming up later this month, you need to make sure they're safe. And again, you need to make sure that opportunists are not going to have inflammatory rhetoric. We, it's, it's not good. And... I don't know if you could really redo an election because I would imagine Tanubu would not approve of that. Like, it's not a good situation, but it shows me that 
democracy is just, there's threats for democracy around the world. And it's important that we conserve democracy as much as we can, because right now it's the best thing we got. And it's a shame to see that a country like Nigeria, once again, that's been on the brink of something big, again, is having these struggles that are probably going to divide the society, the, the society before it makes anything better. So on that note, uh, we'll have to keep watching. Like, obviously, this is all fresh, so we don't actually know what's going to happen. I don't see there being another election, but I do see a lot of the country maybe being angry, and that might lead to some boiling over point. So anyways, on that note, I want you guys to have a great March 1st. Like I said, sorry the episode's a little bit late. I'll be back, but have a great rest of your night. You can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, you know the rest. Take care.